0: when you look at the numbers of what manufacturing is contributing to GDP, you really start to see it drop off during the financial crisis. But for decades now, it seems like there's been this conversation about manufacturing coming back, manufacturing coming back. And now, essentially in the last probably six months, is where I'm really starting to be optimistic that this thing has got some legs and that this is going to happen. I, I think the manufacturing base that we, we knew comes back in a, in a different form and in a much more value-add form than what we've seen in the past. So that kind of, I put some thoughts together, we talked about, or I talked about, uh... Hello and welcome to another episode of Making It in
1: Ontario, the official podcast of the Trillium Network for Advanced Manufacturing. I'm your host, Nick Persicilli, and in this episode, Brendan and I are in Toronto to chat with Matthew Aiken, the sector development lead at Toronto Global, a foreign direct investment attraction agency. His and Toronto Global's work involves meeting with international manufacturing companies, learning about their expansion intentions, and providing them with relevant information about opportunities that exist for them in the greater Toronto area. That day, I set up my mics at the Automotive Parts Manufacturers Association's boardroom in Toronto. Why there? Well, it just ended up that the three of us would all be in Toronto that day, and the APMA was a central location. But we didn't chat with their president, Flavio Volpe, or anyone from the APMA, in fact, but more on that in a minute. In this episode, we discussed the industrial commons in Ontario, a subject which Brendan and Matthew were particularly keen to discuss at length. What is the industrial commons? Well, a simple way to think of it is as an extension of the idea of an advanced manufacturing ecosystem. We at Trillium love the term advanced manufacturing ecosystem because it describes the nature of the relationships between the players in Ontario advanced manufacturing better than other phrases. See, if we say advanced manufacturing sector... That usually implies a discussion of companies. If we say advanced manufacturing industry, it's usually a discussion about revenue and taxes. If we say advanced manufacturing innovations, well, that's often a high-minded discussion bordering on the philosophical. All these and other descriptions are incredibly siloed. But by thinking of it as an advanced manufacturing ecosystem in Ontario, we evoke images of interconnectedness, and rightly so. By looking at it that way, we realize that the interactions between the different aspects of advanced manufacturing are actually what gives Ontario its strength as a manufacturing powerhouse. So, back to the industrial commons. Matthew defines it as the collective pool of knowledge, IP, management know-how, academic institutions, and even the competing companies that are present in a local economy. What issues can they solve together? But for now, let's go back to the fact that we were at the APMA's boardroom that day. The APMA, the Trillium Network, and the litany of other like-minded organizations are kind of a commons in and of themselves. In order to record this episode, we needed a boardroom in Toronto. So we asked Flavio if we could use his boardroom for a morning recording. He said yes. We didn't need him to participate. We didn't need him or his staff to assist us. We didn't even need coffee. We just needed a quiet boardroom in Toronto, and Flav gave one to us. All it cost him was access to his own boardroom for a few hours in the morning, and we got an entire podcast out of it. It's those kinds of relationships, those effortlessly benevolent interactions between players in a specific commons that can lead to great things. It's when one band lends its guitar amps to another band playing in the same show. It's when one technician lends their tools to their colleagues in the same garage. In our example, it led to a podcast episode. What can the industrial commons do to help Ontario's advanced manufacturing ecosystem? Let's find out. All right. Good morning, Brendan. How are you doing?
2: Good, good.
1: All right. We are in uh, We're in Etobicoke today, you and I. We're at the apma boardroom but we're not actually doing uh, chatting with the apma people today are we
2: not even a little bit no
1: <laughs> uh Brennan, you brought a new friend with you today didn't you
2: i sure did like one of our new favorite people kindred spirits and uh, you know it looks like we're potentially collaborating on a number of things moving forward so. mm.
1: and who is this gentleman to my left that's that's your cue
0: Go oh this it. is my cue that's sorry cue, I, was, yeah. I was just i was Hypnotized by the banter back and forth (laughs) there. Uh, My name is Matthew Aiken. I'm the sector development lead at Toronto Global. Toronto Global, for those that don't know, is a foreign direct investment attraction agency. So we scour the globe talking to companies that aren't currently based in Canada and talking to them about any international expansion plans that they have. We, We tell them and make sure that they're aware of how great the greater Toronto area is. And once we've convinced them of that and and they're willing to uh, expand in the area, we assist them with what can be very challenging. We help ensure that soft landing for their new operation here. So it's, it's a long process. It's really interesting work. I love the work that they're doing and I'm excited to be part of the team.
1: So how did you and Brendan meet?
0: So, yeah, we were actually trying to figure that out before we turned the mics on. Uh, I remember, because you uh, thought it was one event. And then it, it turned out, I, I think I've got it. I think I might be right in this case. We, we kind of, there, w- there was a meeting scheduled, and I kind of jumped in last minute because I had a meeting canceled. And that's how we first met each other and started talking. Hmm. But then we reconnected, I think, out at, uh, out at Downsview at a, at a dare event. I think it was the landing gear uh, shout
2: and out it. dare shout out uh, DARE. absolutely absolutely just fantastic research, work so. and this yeah.
0: is i think this is where we kind of really started to bond a little bit because we were trying to figure out or try to understand why doesn't the aerospace sector get more attention because it really is something when you when you start to dig in you start to see what's there the work that dare is doing it's really really amazing to me that it's not more widely understood and maybe gets the and and, and should get a little bit more attention Kindred spirits, like Kindred I said. Spirit. yeah, we and just kind of uh, hit it off. And.
2: and if we think about what's coming down the pipe in the GTA in the next year or two, new Bombardier plant mm-hmm. at Pearson, mm-hmm. another potentially substantial MDA facility on the other side of Brampton, mm-hmm. and that's likely going to cause a whole host of other investments in the aerospace, in the space industry supply chain, and... We, I think we are aligned, all three of us here, that it's important in anticipation of that to build interest, to draw attention to all these exciting aerospace and space investments, whether that's so government folks know and understand the importance of these investments. And I think, you know, I think MDA has three, 400 job openings that they're anticipating i think that's what they they mentioned the 500 i think on on the podcast right i think so yeah can we help them fill those up
0: yeah that's that's essentially you know it's it's uh, as i like to make the joke a rising tide lifts all container ships right so (laughs) nice we can uh yeah i I use i get a lot of miles out of that one and a lot of rolling eyes as well uh especially people that have heard it for the third or fourth time yeah Uh, but just can continuing on on the story on on how we kind of came to today is that i had I'd been talking to Toronto Global about starting a, a blog or just something, you know, being able to, an opportunity to collect my thoughts, put them down on, on screen somewhere. And, you know, I really started to think about what the first one would look like, and it was about this idea of a manufacturing renaissance. And in Ontario, in North America, be be it wherever. It's an idea that's been kicked around for for decades, essentially as soon as we started to see an erosion in the base of manufacturing in this country, like going into the you know through the 90s and then through the early 2000s and then the financial crisis. I mean, you, when you look at the numbers of what manufacturing is contributing to GDP, you really start to see it drop off during the financial crisis. But for decades now it seems like there's been this conversation about manufacturing coming back, manufacturing coming back, and now essentially in the last probably six months is where I'm really starting to be optimistic that this thing has got some legs and that this is going to happen. I, I think the manufacturing base that we we knew back many decades ago, I don't think that that comes back, I, but I do think manufacturing comes back in a, in a different form and in a much more value add form than what we've seen in the past. So that kind of, I, I put some thoughts together. We talked about I talked about, you know, the, the larger ecosystem. I talked a little bit about the industrial commons, which is, I think, what what really captured Brendan's imagination a little bit. And, you know, suggested that we get together, we do a podcast, and we just kind of unscripted, talk about some ideas, talk about what's going on, where we're excited, maybe some things to that are keeping us awake at night, things to keep an eye on.
2: We have been using the term, the concept ecosystem mm-hmm. to just to to describe rather than sector, rather than industry. And you know, you've added to this nomenclature that term industrial commons, the concept of industrial commons, and I like it and I wanna know more about it. Okay. What's the, industri- so, so the, what's the industrial what's the industrial commons? Say, so.
0: The first thing I wanna say with regards to industrial commons is that it's not my concept. It's an idea I've I've, you know, I'm the product of having read a lot, having had a lot of great conversations, worked in a lot of different areas. I've worked in a number of different sectors, manufacturing being my favorite by far. I've had experiences in, in all major functional areas of supply chain. So the idea of, of Industrial Commons for me is this idea that it is a collective pool, if you will, of knowledge and IP and you know management know-how and you know the players are, are Obviously, industry companies within an industry, educational institutions, suppliers of every kind that are co-related, and even competitors that all contribute to this idea of an industrial commons. And commons is from that idea of like it's a open grazing land that anyone can use. It's it's open to the public, and that's essentially this this concept of industrial commons. If that makes sense, is that a sufficient enough definition? That's kind of how I think about it.
2: Yeah, and so uh, and and it's a great definition. And the, the idea that the industrial commons is open to everybody, how does that actually work on the ground? How do we get there? How do we make sure that if that these resources are available to everybody, whether it's overcoming that challenge of imperfect information that, okay, only some people might have information about some of these assets or, or, or partners within the commons, only some people may understand that it exists but go uh, is that really for me am i too small for that or am i too big for that and it also means that there there has to be or i think it means there has to be some openness to exchange ideas and information and god forbid resources among folks who if they're not competing for customers they might be competing for employees or for attention Am I on the right track here? You're, is this- you're, yeah,
0: that's that's essentially it. I mean, it's such a broad topic to, to to discuss, and I think maybe that's one of the things we love about it. And, but you're you're part of that industrial commons whether you want to be or not, right? Uh-huh. If you're if you're an industry, you're in it, and you know you're you're participating in it. The way I also like to think about it too is that if you're not contributing to it, if you're not participating in those conversations and helping to address larger problems, be they with You know you're talking to government and making sure that they're aware of the challenges that you face and what potential solutions look like and what is the latest and greatest especially with technology moving as fast as it is it's development innovation that's taking place at such a fast rate i know i know you can kind of time box that statement and apply that to any decade or any year in the past and it's it's a timeless statement but it just feels like the world is you know I, i have to check the paper every single day to see what what is that latest and greatest thing that's just been launched? And it's easy to fall behind on it. So if you're not participating in those conversations, if you're not tending to and, and looking to maintain the commons, that hurts everyone. That hurts the participants within the commons. Another way of thinking about it too is that if, you have, if you're an employee in a particular industry and you're working for one company and you go across the street and you, and you work for another company, you take all of that knowledge, all of that capability, there's a, there's a line, I'm gonna screw this up and I cannot remember where I got it from, but it's, you can't unsee how a product is made. So if I'm working at company X and I, I, I understand how I helped design this product, I've helped uh, you know scale up manufacturing, I take that knowledge across the street. Yes, there are IP rules in place, but the know-how, being patient through an iterative process, or you know, being able to shorten product development as a result of all that knowledge at company Y, the new company that you go to work for, right? So the, it, that's the diffusion. I think that we that that you see whether you want to or not, whether you want to participate or not, whether you want to be closed off or not, you're still in it. And if you're not part of the solution, as the saying goes, you're effectively part of the problem.
2: Over the past couple years, of, and you know, Nick's been along for the ride the acts i mean i think you can probably flip a switch sometime last fall where our access even just on this podcast to companies that three four years ago would never would never have agreed to speak with us privately let alone publicly our our access has just increased exponentially not to name names we have a podcast go and see who's coming on it. And even, I think at points, the the ease of engaging with people where it wasn't us banging down doors. It was, it was people from companies that had been fiercely private until, oh, around 2020, who are now saying, hey, can we come on your podcast? This sounds pretty cool. Hey, do you have any, you know, is there something we can collaborate on? Are you seeing this too? Are you seeing generally manufacturers, let's just call it pre-pandemic, post-pandemic, post-pandemic, our manufacturers, our members of this industrial commons being more open, coming out onto the circuit with us, sharing willingly their experience and information, because I, th- I think we are seeing that and there is a little bit of objective, Maybe it's, maybe it's anecdotes bordering evidence at this point, but it seems that we're a lot further along on that today, Than we were in 2017.
0: Yeah, no, I would I would completely agree with that. I I think what you're seeing is part of the you know what's happening on on a broader scale. I think a lot of lessons were learned in the pandemic, and I think a lot of the lessons, a lot of the great lessons anyway, were were with regards to like I am going to unclench my fist little a little bit, and I'm going to work. We were reminded about the importance of working with a supplier versus just focusing on unit cost and. If your unit cost isn't low enough that I can hit a margin that I'm trying to hit, I'm going to go and find your competitor and work with them versus, no, no, here's the situation I am in from an operational standpoint. How can you help me? How can we work together? How can we exchange, you said it, exchange information, realizing that we are in this together. But I remember reading about stories in, in Europe where you know, companies that were, were competitors were actually working together on, you know, allocating raw materials, so that everyone can stay above the waterline, as it were. And this is, the, these are not new concepts, right? I mean, we all remember CPFR, collaborative planning, forecasting, and replenishment, as a concept. It kind of fell away in this, this neoliberal economic idea. You know, on a larger point, I think we're, we're, we're still trying to figure out what this new economic paradigm looks like. And I do think it is a lot to do You'll see a lot more of this type of open information, open collaboration with business partners and understanding just a little bit more there. So, yeah, so I'm I'm definitely seeing it. I'm definitely reading about it, hearing about it. I, I think this is these are all great things, right? This is another reason why I'm so optimistic about what's happening and what I'm seeing.
1: It sounds to me like one of the lessons learned from a lot of these companies in the post pandemic time is the value of. Communication and having something like, and again, I am a voice and a choir. I have a podcast. Matthew, you have a blog. They're they're talking about the importance of, of of communicating, and I think that one to Brendan's point about getting access to all these different companies, I think they're realizing that a large part of this is storytelling, and. And I feel free to jump in with your opinion on this. But I mean, if if if, if I go back to the pandemic and I think to myself, OK, we are a, a region that can manufacture and maintain airplanes, but we can't make masks. I, I don't know. I, it, it didn't. It just it, something about that was like, really, what what are we doing here? So like in the industrial commons, which I, I think is an even is a fantastic term for an expansion of the idea of an ecosystem. What is the story, Matthew, do you think that. Is coming out of all of this.
0: So, so I think one thing that companies learned is that they're they're better able to understand risks with regards to their supply chain and being able to not just that, but being able to put a price to it or put a cost to it. Thank you. If if there's something, I'm sorry, this is completely unscripted for everyone. Uh, oh yeah, the totally us, unscripted. The three of us have just shown up and we're just we we turned on the on on the <laughs> turned everything on and here we go. Yeah. But uh, I, I think that's a big part of it is that understanding when, you know, as an example, your customer has it expects shipment and delivery within 14 days. I cut a purchase order, I want it delivered my back dock, 14 days. But you're sourcing from offshore somewhere, and it takes 90 days from the time you cut a purchase order to get that component in for you then to turn around and make whatever product it is you're making and then turn around and deliver it. So understanding the risks associated with such a long and how do I want to put this? There's, there's a lot of touches to that product in 90 days. And there's a lot of gates that product has to go through and pass through. We saw this all through the pandemic, right? And I think everybody, you know, one of the things that I, I, I still laugh about that happened during the pandemic is that when we were allowed to congregate outdoors once again, and everyone's having barbecues in the summertime outdoors, all of a sudden, my friends wanted to talk about what I did for a living. And that's the first time in a... 20, 25 year career that anyone has shown any interest really in supply chain, in, in manufacturing and understanding what goes on in behind the curtain of, of getting products that they want. So yeah, I, I I really think that that's a big part of it. I still think there's a long ways to go. With regards to you know understanding risk what is the uh a cost associated, answers your question
1: it does and now i'm going to follow up with another one Excellent. um so matthew you said before you were talking about how manufacturing left and now manufacturing is coming back mm-hmm. right tell me a little bit about the manufacturing that left and then tell me about a little bit about the manufacturing that's coming back what is coming back what isn't and what's coming and what's coming that we never had in your opinion
0: so uh, we're we're definitely seeing a, a growth in automotive again, and I, I think that is like such a just such a great thing, right? Because automotive is a, is an economic driver. I think you're seeing more on green energy, obviously renewable energy. I, I think the form that it's going to take is much more automated than what it used to be. Maybe the one thing and and I guess we can we can talk about it now. I'll bring it up now. Is one thing I'm concerned about is the the transition in, that we're seeing in automotive. I mean. All the hyperbole is, is correct. It's, it's under a radical transformation right now. You know, you've got, let's, if we can paint the picture here a little bit, you've got, the people have spoken. Elected officials have decided we're getting away from internal combustion engine into a new form. From a consumer standpoint, I think there's still a lot of underlying concerns when it comes to mass adoption. We're maybe a little bit hesitant with regards to how far I can get an electric vehicle. We're, we're hesitant as to, you know, how long does it take to recharge this battery? If it's, if it's a battery that we're talking about, versus you know just being able to pull over with my internal combustion engine, five minutes, I've got enough fuel, I can get home, and there's fantastic infrastructure out there. So charging infrastructure, right? In my neighborhood, there's a lot of cars that park out on the street. There's a lot of old apartment buildings, new condos that have gone up. In those parking lots, it's pretty tight as it is. So now all of a sudden, if we're talking that a charge requires eight hours for a full charge, possibly, that car has to stay stationary in one spot, Trying to put in all those charging machines is, is a significant challenge. So not seeing that infrastructure built up yet, I think, is is hindering adoption a little bit. But then you look at it on the manufacturing side, and this is where the real challenges are, is that we don't know what that dominant form of technology is going to look like yet. You know, there's there's ranges that are out there where, you know, I see anywhere between fifteen to forty percent. Brendan, correct me if you've seen something differently, with regards to wider adoption. Away from internal combustion, so forty percent of the vehicles on on the road become.
2: It depends who you're asking. Well, this is this is exactly are you asking it, the realists
0: right? or the zealots or the haters. This is exactly right. it. So, but you, at a, as a manufacturer, as a company, you're trying to figure this out, and you are trying to transform your business without that really being known. And you, we don't know what the dominant chemistry is going to look like, right? It feels like it's going to be lithium ion right? That's what we're moving towards too. But, you know, there's other solutions out there that are maybe more expensive that hold a charge longer. Those might, and, and, and again, we're scaling, we're we're innovating processes as we're going along. Battery technology is improving as we're going along
2: here. And it's also, it's also very possibly the case that, you know, might not be in five years, but in 30 years, something exists that, isn't, that doesn't exist yet, or exactly. we've applied something to propulsion or to fueling that to charging fueling that we've not thought to do yet or magic right or we just invent magic and Mm -hmm. everything's teleporting and everything's done with it probably we don't get there to like you know 2080 but by 2050 we could be seeing something that we haven't seen i I would guarantee it i would guarantee
0: it if you just think about Mm. the analogy i like to use is that I, i maybe we're all old enough to remember the motorola flip phone I owned one, yes. Yes, I had one too. So you got, what, an hour's worth of charge out of that? Maybe, when you were using it, and it got really hot. It got really (laughs) uncomfortable to hold into your ear. But you look at what the technology is now for cell phones. And that wasn't that long ago. That was, you know, late 90s. The the cell phone now compared to the cell phone... 25 years ago was magic. It, th- this is what I mean. think, magic. If you gave that to somebody, this is magic. We're waiting for some this magic pop, to happen. Right? We don't know what it's going to look like, but yeah. I, I I agree completely. Like in 25 years, for those of us that are around today to see the transformation and, and hopefully still here in 25, we're going to be like, wow, this is some really this is an amazing accomplishment. Yeah. The charging
2: infrastructure, and Nick, Nick's heard this yarn a million times, but it's my favorite one when it comes to the charging infrastructure, and it's a very Toronto story. And I, I, I've i been spinning this one since like 2013 or 2014. Mm-hmm. And it's about the street that I grew up in, Wheeler Avenue, grew up on, Wheeler Avenue, and the winter. And winters used to be, for, for, for the younger generation, winters used to be colder, right? <laughs> yes. And harder, and yes. there was less to eat. Yeah. And,
0: um, and it was uphill both ways. Yeah, it, and,
2: Wheeler uh, was uphill one way. It was really uphill one <laughs> way. But the... Um, but it was also you know one hundred and twenty thousand dollars for a house on Wheeler Avenue, where I think it's two million one hundred and twenty thousand dollars for it. Wow. anyway, no one really had drive a couple people had driveways. Um, but so when it was really cold in the wintertime, the game was getting you know parking your delta eighty eight out front of your house or at least out front of like a neighbor you you knew in front of their house, and then plugging in, running a series of extension cords. Yep. From under your porch, yep. out of the basement, across the sidewalk, you know, to keep the car plugged in, so it would yep. start in the morning. Yep. No, I remember those days. That that street hasn't changed that much, and you would, you could make a, you could guess, that city driving. That that's a really great spot for people to have EVs, but they can't. You're not going to put that. Uh, you're not going to run that cord across the sidewalk to charge your car, mm-hmm. where are those people going to charge their car? And the problem the problem is not necessarily that there's a street where people can't charge their car. The problem is we don't know how many of those streets exist. We don't know what that, that means for the latent market. And the only place we saw a presentation from someone at the city of Vancouver, this is the only city in Canada that I've seen really say this is how many people have access to charging at home. This is the part of the city that has access. This is the part of the city that doesn't, you know, even affluent parts of Toronto. It's not Oakville or Burlington where everyone gets to park in their driveway and, yeah, just come put a charger in. And that seems like, you know, we've made very, very, we've made more progress on making EVs over the past 10 years than figuring out how to bring charging infrastructure to a large swath of the population because we haven't even figured out how big that swath of the population is. So there's still so much work to do. But then again, you've heard this one before too, having a lot of work to do is a lot better than having no work to do.
0: Yeah. No, I, I, I agree. I, uh, you know, and it's easy to be cynical. It's easy to be cynical about all these things.
2: And sometimes it's fun. Can't, I'll, I'll
0: admit, mm-hmm. I'll admit, off mic, we can talk about this later. Um, <laughs> but but I really, and it's, it's hard, uh, you know, trying to stay, uh, optimistic isn't the right word, but trying to stay in the argument, in the discussion, in the fight to like, what does the solution look like, right? And what can we build to? And just accept that there's going to be a number of challenges, accept the fact that we're going to have to take some risk, we're going to be wrong. This is something I, I don't know that we we do well enough in Canada overall is is accept risk and embrace risk. We're, we're very, I think we're a very conservative company. This is in the, the business DNA that you see out there, right? And I think, you know, we, we've all seen it for years and we're, we're start. it feels like we're changing though. When you, when you talk to a Canadian company, it's maybe a little bit more about, I don't want to lose what I have. I, I like what I have right now and I don't want to lose that. But and when you talk to a company south of the border in the US, it's more about, I don't want to miss out on what sounds like a fantastic opportunity, be it whatever it might be, right? There just seems to be that, that different, little bit of a different mindset. And it goes back to when we look at labor productivity in the country, when we look at that kind of thing. I mean, it's an opportunity for us to improve. It's an, it's an opportunity for us to, to really innovate in this space, I think.
1: I want to go back to the d- to the discussion of defining risk because you said Canadians in general are fairly risk averse. Do you think Canadians in manufacturing or at least the lever pullers of policy, let's say, do you think they properly understand the risks we're facing?
0: I, I think they do. When you sit down and you have a cup of coffee and just, you know, a high level conversation, I think they do. But the question is, is that, you know, why would I put what I have at risk? Where, where is that incentive to expand you, I, I hear access to capital as a challenge for for local businesses and this is where I really really think foreign direct investment might be able to play an opportunity. you're bringing money in and, and providing access to capital indirectly right because there's taxes that you you know you can accrue from other companies yeah so I, I think I think there's definitely something there too with regards to, you know, trying to figure out what, what are the incentives in place, where are the mechanisms, what mechanisms do we need. Uh, we do have some mechanisms. Do those mechanisms need to be changed? Do they need to be altered? Like one of the things that I've, I've just recently started to try to understand a little bit more is when you talk about the scientific research and exploratory development tax credit. You know? Shred. Shred, right? I'm, I'm hearing that its adoption, its uptake is not what it could be or what we've, I guess, budgeted for. And I think there's a lot of challenges with it, from what I understand. I mean, if the CRA is administering it, it, the the application process can be very challenging to understand. Even trying to appeal rejections and stuff like that. And and you know, one of the things that I see, and another cause for optimism, is the great work that we see from NGen.
1: On a previous episode, I did with actually it was one of the first ones with Jonathan party He's the owner of Laval Tool, Laval Tools out in Windsor. Laval's you'd call it. Lavals. Laval's sorry, Laval's, yes. So he and I are both Star Trek fans, and for us, the pinnacle of like the ultimate manufacturing dream we would be the matter replicator. Right? It can replicate, you know, a component for a phaser or a a chocolate sundae. So it's like just rearrange the matter and matter is matter bringing it back to the 21st century here, we're still chasing scale because scale is safe. You hit control C and then you hit control V a million times. And every time you hit it, you get five cents. Do you think it's worthwhile to the both of you actually for us to chase and to continue to chase scale or do we need to find something else?
2: I I think on the question of scale and risk and reward and all this, I I think we have to chase business that rewards risk. And I'll give you an example of why this is a concern that, and why this may cause a lag or a disincentive to change and to invest in new technology. And that is because some, you know, I mean, question the, the, the conversations that we're having very openly about our grocery oligopoly, when you flip it around into the supply chain, it becomes an oligopsony, seldom used word, but it's a real word. Um, really? Yeah, it's a real word. Yeah. Oligopsony? Yeah, just monopoly, monopsony, oligopoly, oligopsony. Anyway. Thank you, Professor Sweeney. Yeah. Welcome. <laughs> Welcome. So it'll be on it. will be on the test. Um, the, <laughs> right uh, afterwards. Yeah, it's not. And it's not open book. Um, <laughs> and put your phone away. Um, but the. You know, in throughout the food supply chain, there are a ton, and we've had a couple on the podcast, and, and they probably won't go as far as I will on this, but we've had a, a, a we there there are a number of small food processors, beverage processors, who as soon you know, if they invest and they take that risk, and then there's some reward to it, they have to share those rewards unequally with their customer who is much more powerful than them. That's certainly true in the food industry. I mean, we had one, you know, a a medium-sized, well-known family company that we know, and they're, you know, they're west of Toronto. We'll just say that. They're doing some amazing food processing technology. Their waste is down, you know, by, you know, they've made massive improvements. They'll never tell us about it, publicly, anyway. Because they say the first thing we did, we're going to get a call from you know who, and they're going to say, so we're going to take that cost down. You know, we're, instead of giving you a dollar, we're giving you 80 cents now. Make it work. Oh, great. So that disincentive is there, and it's certainly in food, but it's in other parts of the supply chain there. And that exists, that exists in Canada and North America to a degree that it does not exist in other parts of the world. And again, this is my soapbox, but I think we have to address that, that if we want suppliers, tier two, tier three suppliers, machining, machining companies, tooling companies, you name it, small food ingredient companies, if we want them to innovate, to take on risk in order to modernize, we can't have customers that punish them for
0: doing so. Do you think that's, uh, Brendan, do you think that's a, a, a result of maybe a form of protectionism that those at the top of that that pyramid are able to take advantage of in some some way.
2: Yeah, uh, uh, a little bit, and it's it's a and it's certainly a power balance, a power or it's a power balance that we've never actually figured to balance out, and it's tricky because at the same time, if you're chasing scale, you're making two million of something, and you're making a penny off each of those. At the end of the day, you know that's what you do every week at the end of the day you make a few bucks right how do you how do you burn the plant down and modernize it while you're stamping things and making money and so so when do you find the time to do that you know you can do that in a new build but how many new builds can we so so there's there are this complex constellation of things going on sometimes a tendency to want to simplify things to get to the bottom of it but when you simplify you you know you get simple results right so yeah um, the and the more the more you peel back the layers of this onion
0: yeah we're the, making it sound really simple to just change a few things and we're all good one question i have i, I guess for the two of you my turn to play moderator i guess that is, wasn't part of the deal that wasn't part <laughs> of the deal but we're going to do it anyway cuz it's just, just free for cuz we're live because uh, it's a nice power balance in here right? there you go yes yeah. right see we, no one no one person has to be the expert mm-hmm. um so, so when we talk about scale, there's the, you know, the decision to scale, right? But then there's also the underlying question, like, how do we scale? How do you go about transformation? And what are you trying to transform to, right? With regards to, like, what are those solutions that are out there? And this is, this is sometimes a challenge as well is that, you know, and, and Brendan made me think about it when he's saying, like, you know, you're, you're trying to run an operation. You're trying to keep what customers you have. And then you're talking about, you know, further scaling your business it's the same thing with any kind of transformation it's it's like well how how do i pay attention to what's going on out there to know what solutions are available and this this is a significant challenge that you sometimes find with with business leaders is that you know they're they're trying to run their their business day to day and maybe don't understand all of the latest and greatest with regards to erp solutions that are out there my soapbox is always excel spreadsheets the pervasiveness of Excel spreadsheets being essentially the number one selling operating uh, enterprise resource planning uh, system, by far, by far, number one. And there's, of course, a lot of limitations with it, but we continue, a lot of businesses continue to lean on Excel for, for their planning function. Often, what you can say is, as a measure of project success, if you're looking at implementing an ERP system, is measure how much your team is using Excel beforehand, do your implementation, and measure how much they're using it afterwards. And if it's the same or more, it kind of gives you a sense as to, you know, whether you pick the right solution, address the right challenges, address the right problems, because often that's, that's how Excel comes about. It's a, it's a failing in the, the underlying ERP system that you have and you use Excel to compensate for it. You can't communicate across an organization using Excel. By the time you put your plans together, they're already obsolete. Who has access to the spreadsheet? Who can make changes to the spreadsheet? You know, what's happening on the shop floor right now? Excel has a real problem with all of these things. So if you're looking for real-time information and trying to make decisions based on real-time information and leveraging Excel, it's just not gonna be there. But I'm a busy plant manager, and
2: I I understand what Excel is. I've got it, I can open it up on my computer and put some stuff into it and save it. How do you convince me that I need something else that sounds more complicated. Is this, and question, question, is this where the industrial commons can help?
0: I think for sure. I think uh, one of the things that I I hear when I talk to US-based ERP providers, software providers, is that Canada is a very tough market to play in. And what what I often find too is that, you know, people that are trying to sell that solution don't really understand the problem or the problems within a business that they're trying to sell to. So right away, that puts you behind an eight ball a little bit. It's really trying to understand what are those underlying problems? What, what are the challenges with Excel and where are the opportunities themselves? One thing I, I try to tell, or that I share with, with client firms is that like, look, you've got some, some data. You've got some sales data. Take a year on, a, on particular products or whatever. Cut the sales data in half. Share that with a software provider. Let them come back to you what, with what they would figure out as a, as a forecasting algorithm, and compare that to what you actually did, and see what that improvement would look like. And if you can see, and if they can demonstrate the value, then then it becomes a much easier sale. You know, quantifying the supply chain is a significant step in the right direction. You know, being able to associate dollars to, you know, risk to all of the inputs into decisions. That is essentially where I think supply chain management needs to go, put everything in dollar values, because then that that is, you know, I, I guess you could apply the to the industrial commons idea that it becomes a much easier thing to understand for everyone, for the CEO, for the CFO, for everyone.
2: So back to, you know, the whole idea of the industrial commons, of the ecosystem, and I think we all agree that we've come a really, really, really long way. I mean, I'm coming here today from the you know the grand opening of the mcmaster manufacturing uh the mmri oh is that where you were yeah yeah that's why i got i had to dress up and just i mean a lot of buzz in the room we've been at some of the dare events we've been at some of the oac events we've got project Arrow coming to the automares tomorrow mm-hmm. and there's just there's so much buzz and this is whether it's an industry association a university a college a research center Uh, an economic development organization. I mean, we've seen, uh, you know, NGEN, shout out NGEN, we've seen this this industrial commons, this ecosystem develop over the past five, six, seven years. You know, it's just really exciting if we compare where we're at today with where we were at in 2015 or 2016, but it's a work in progress and there's still, you know, it's not a complete ecosystem, it's not a complete commons and there's still some gaps. So Matthew, I'm just, I'm curious, as to where you see, you know, do, uh, do you generally agree with that statement that we've evolved and developed? And do you see some gaps remaining? And what are those gaps and how do we
0: fill them? I, I definitely agree. Like, we, like I mentioned before, I'm incredibly optimistic now, more so than I ever have been with regards to, you know, the direction that we're going as, as a province, as a region, which is absolutely fantastic. I mean, I think one of the things we don't know, what we don't know. I mean, that's, that's the easiest gap to, to really talk about. I'm sure there's an education that needs to still continue to take place, you know, be it in industry, be it with uh, educational institutions, be it with political entities, other agencies, you know, just trying to keep everybody apprised as to what is happening out there and what, what is available. This is where I really get excited about the work that Toronto Global can do from a foreign direct investment perspective, because you know, not only are we bringing capital in, to the region. Not only are we bringing jobs in, but you're bringing in IP, you're bringing in know-how, you're bringing in possibly new processes, new ways of doing things, new ways of thinking about things. And these all contribute to the industrial commons and have those spillover effects. So even if it's just one company that comes over, labor is very mobile, right? You can't unsee a product being made when someone leaves they take all the knowledge and, and capabilities that they've built up with them and it goes somewhere else and then it, it cross-pollinates and I, again this is where i get really excited with what what toronto global is doing and what they're capable of and and what the future holds with regards to addressing a lot of those gaps so you
2: you can't unlearn the soft skills like you mentioned earlier patience yeah that You learn in managing a project, even, you know, even if all that really technical IP remains with a company, when the person leaves and they say, you know what, we really learned about how long this will actually take when we get charted it out compared to what we hope. And those are the kind of things that those and others, I think, are critically important to successful project implementation, rollouts, production, and they often go overlooked. And you can't IP patients.
0: Yeah.
1: so <laughs> I think you can unlearn patients, though. Yeah.
0: Just <laughs> I, I, any... I learn it every I think day. <laughs> I think that's the title of the podcast right there mm-hmm. is that you can't IP patients. Yeah. So. There
1: you go. <laughs> yeah.
0: So one of the questions I love asking, and it's and it's a great conversation starter, is, you know, from a work perspective, what's keeping you awake at night? I'm good at keeping
2: myself awake at night by, like, listening to loud rock music or loud house music at eleven thirty, and then trying to figure out why i can't get to sleep from a, from a work perspective from Brandon. a work for, oh yeah, yeah aren't yeah, you yeah. a leafs fan too brendan uh, yeah oh that's uh, that's yeah, that, con- yeah. conversation over right yeah. there you know that's yeah. that's enough right you there you can't you can't win game seven if you don't win game four <laughs> so <laughs> anyway we're uh yeah it's it's may uh may 11th yeah recording everyone anyway so here we are i think what keeps me up at night and this is one of those kind of You know, one of the great parts about Ontario, and particularly about Southern Ontario, is diversity broadly conceived. And so, yes, diversity in our population, our demographics, end of story, great place to be because of that. One of the things that makes Southern Ontario uh, so affluent is the diversity in our economy, we're a financial center, we're, we're, we're a, a software and AI center, and our, you know, our AI is being recognized globally. There's always some construction to be done, right? Whether that's residential, whether that's infrastructure, whether that's commercial, whether that's industrial, we're extremely well-suited to growing things that we eat. You go a little further up north, the natural resources and the minerals that we have in the ground, and then you know we also have world-leading education and healthcare infrastructure. Wow. That's a lot of things. Which one is the priority? I don't know. They're all priorities. No, they can't all be priorities, or by definition, they're not. There are no priorities. Or then we don't have priorities. So what keeps me up at night, one, is making certain that everybody understands how important manufacturing is in an environment where a lot of things are important in an economy where a lot of things are important but also understanding that hey some of these challenges that we face whether it's environment whether it's food security whether it's housing we can probably better leverage our existing manufacturing capabilities as a solution to those pro as a very profitable solution to those problems But we can't do that if we don't have the right people in place. And, you know, another yarn, this is going back. And this shows you the difference between 2017 and today. But we were at one of these industry conferences and a senior leader from a large tier one manufacturer said to the then premier, I'm afraid that Ontario is turning into a socialist province. I can say these things because we're not a brand. Okay, you're not a brand on the end product, but you're a brand to your current employees and to potential employees so the idea that you're not a brand this is some 1990s thinking when you had people lining up down the street for your jobs that's not the case so how are manufacturers or even companies that make things going to work on branding and or rebranding themselves and redesigning work rethinking work rethinking jobs rethinking recruitment not just to compel people to work for you in exchange for money but to inspire people. So how are they going to do that? And we've seen um, I will name names here because go back listen to that Kepler podcast, one of the only companies that we've talked to and said, "So labor shortage, how are things hiring?" and they go, oh, "It's fine, it's great. We have, we have this super cool company, super cool culture, super high tech, we're making great products, super close to UFT. Super close to UFT, 196 Spadina. And so yeah, we don't really
0: you know, we pay really well. So we don't really have a problem. Oh, Okay, so how can we? Was there an awkward moment when you realized that there wasn't more to discuss in that? To...
2: Yeah, and then we're like, oh well, okay, this is going to be a, this is going to be a short episode, I was just right? Say the, um, the two minute podcast. Yeah, yeah. and um, thanks for coming, everyone. Bye. <laughs> yeah, but so h- how can we get to a point where there are more companies that are like that, are saying, yeah, we changed some things, we rethought some stuff, and yeah, now we have people flocking to us, and they're leaving, uh, they're leaving the banks, they're leaving, um, they're leaving you know, government jobs or whatever to come work for us because it's better for them, it's more exciting, it's more interesting, and we pay well. Boom. Yeah.
0: Mic drop right there. Please don't drop my mics.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so that's a fairly consistent message from Brendan there. So we need to get out of the APMA's boardroom fairly quickly here, so I'm going to try to end on a positive note. To the two of you, what are you guys looking forward to, aside from, you know, the improved weather that's coming hopefully soon?
2: I'm optimistic that all the all this work we've laid out for everybody that's in front of us, all these challenges that we've identified, I'm optimistic that we're pretty smart around here and we're pretty ambitious and that we're going to solve them. So what I'm really excited about is one, just you know, in ten years looking back and saying, "Wow, how did well, you know, unpacking how we solved those problems, you know," and I think again, APMA plug, I think. You know, if you go back four or five years, how are we going to get everyone interested in Canada's EV capabilities? OK, I don't know. What do we let's make a car and show them off. And so I wonder if there's, you know, like reflecting back on on, on on that. And um, yeah. And so in 10 years, how what are we going to look back and say, how did we work together to come to create the, those, those solutions, to create the right conditions and. How did we leverage the ecosystem slash industrial commons to do so? And, you know, I'm going to quote my pal John Peller, who likes to say, you know, that the power of collective ambition and, and its ability to improve people's lives is just astronomical when it's well aligned. So that's what I'm looking forward to in the next three, five, ten years to be able to look back and say, how did we collectively rally together around certain ambitions, around certain programs and improve people's lives in Ontario and the rest of Canada and the rest of the world?
0: Yeah, mine's very, very similar, actually. I'm, I'm excited to see how we continue to strengthen the threads within the industrial commons. You know, this is the, I've said this before, to a few people out that we're really seeing for the first time, educational institutions tying into industry, industry tying into government agencies and everyone talking and collectively trying to figure out how do we move things forward? How do we innovate? How, how do we create? I, I think that's in, in, incredibly, I, th- I think that's gonna be a lot of fun to watch that happen. I, I say this at the office too, like, you know, I listen to Minister Fideli and I get excited. I listen to Minister Champagne, and I get really excited. Not to say that one over the other, but, but you're seeing action behind the words, I guess is my point. You know, you're, you're not just seeing, you know, here's this idea, and we're gonna pursue it. No, no, this is what we're actually doing. We're, we're putting shovels in the ground, we're getting projects launched, and we are moving forward. So that's fantastic, Brendan.
1: Matthew, thank you so much for chatting with us today. And of course, thank you to our silent guests, the APMA, for letting us use their boardroom today.
0: Thank you.